Welcome to The Kilted Kiwi, the podcast for all of those interested in nature, conservation work, and climate change. We are your hosts for this episode. My name is Emma Sabiak. And I'm Sean Milne. Together, over the coming months, we'll be looking to shine a spotlight on conservation work in Scotland and New Zealand. Our aim is to raise the profile of the vital work going on across both countries as they face a double whammy of a nature and climate emergency. And we hope to spark a debate about what direction we need to go and to deliver tangible and meaningful change for the good. But first, a new part of the show. Each episode, we choose to highlight a sound of nature throughout the episode. If you can identify this week's critter, let us know on our social media. In this episode, we look at how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted on activity across Scotland and how organisations have adapted to cope. We've been speaking with David Hunt, Senior Conservation Officer with RSPB Scotland, Mike Daniels, Head of Policy and Land Management with the John Muir Trust. But first of all, we caught up with Neil Mitchell, Manager of Loch Leven National Nature Reserve for Nature Scott, and he explained how wildlife doesn't have the option of going into lockdown even when the rest of us are. Hello there. Hi, Sean. Beautifully queued up. <laughs> Some kind of bird. That will be one of our mallards, yeah, having a wee laugh at us. It's an absolutely gorgeous view where, where, where we are. Can you, can you explain exactly, for people who've never been here, you know, where Loch Leven is? Okay, so yeah, we're at Loch Leven. Um, it's the east coast of Scotland, just north of Edinburgh. Um, you may, in between the, uh, the sound of the resident ducks, you might be able to hear the sound of the M90 as well, which uh, passes very close by us. So we're centrally located. And we're currently sitting in what we call the Mill Hide, uh, which overlooks um, the reserve. We can see the sleeping giant hill in the background. We've also got Castle Island, um, where Mary Queen of Scots was exiled, and several, well, tens of thousands of different ducks, geese, and swans, um, who will probably be sound checking from time to time while we're talking. I have to say, I mean, just gazing out from the height here across the, the lock, you know, the, the sun's shimmering on top of the water here, the trees are bathed in this kind of glow in, in the background. It's an absolutely stunning place for you to call an office. I mean, how, how long have you been here? Uh, so I've been here for 12 years now, um, and yeah, it's, it's just an amazing place, and every day is different here. Um, you know, but the sunrises that we get here, particularly in the winter, you know, with the sound of the geese overhead, um, and, you know, particularly from this hide here where you look out to the east and the sun just comes up over the eastern horizon um, and it's, it's just a beautiful place to work, it really is. And how many people are in your team? You know, what, what do you do here and how did you yourself get involved with, with this particular project? Um, so, yeah, um, the team here, um, it varies. We've got a seasonal ranger and we've had graduate placements. Um, and there's normally uh, another member of uh, a reserve officer who's uh, kind of ranger member of staff, always out and about on the reserve. And, you know, what we do here, I mean, the, the reserve, in the 12 years that I've been here, it's seen quite a few changes. Um, there's now a path um, 13 miles that goes the whole way round the loch. And that's an all abilities trail. Um, so folk can cycle it, they can walk it, you can push buggies around it. Um, much of it's wheelchair accessible as well. The hide that we're in here at the moment is, is wheelchair accessible. So, you know, um, we do a lot of surveys. The site is really important for the um, 
ducks, geese and swans which visit here. Um, at the moment all the winter migrants are arriving, um, but during the summer months the islands on the loch are really important for nesting duck as well. And the thing that struck me about here the first time when I, when I arrived was the sheer scale of it is huge, absolutely huge. I mean, it goes on as far as I can see. That's right, yeah, yeah. So it's 1800 hectares, um, which doesn't mean a lot to, to most folk. Um, but if you imagine the path is 13 miles the whole way round, um, and from the hide that we're sat at here, I can see what I think is the end of the lock in, in the distance. But in actual fact, um, that's St. Surf's Island, which is home to many of our nesting duck species during the summer months. The end of the loch is another couple of kilometres past that. Um, so yeah, it is, it's actually the largest loch in lowland Scotland. Um, there are some of the highland lochs north of the hind, highland boundary fall to bigger, but in lowland Scotland, this is the largest, um, the largest of the lot. One thing that you know anybody who lives around here can't um, avoid noticing is you know in October, the geese that arrive, like a you know some kind of crazy invading army it's only thousands upon thousands of them come across and you can just hear them you know sort of all times of day mostly in the morning certainly late at night you know is is that the biggest you know um flock that that arrive here on an annual basis yes the most uh, during the winter the most numerous species would be the, the pink-footed geese um and october is our peak arrival time for them so during sort of mid to end of October, we can have up to 20 odd thousand visiting the reserve. And those, you know, they feed in the fields surrounding the loch and then Loch Leven is a perfect safe roost site for them to come and roost. And so that's what, what they visit the site for is it's the safety of having, having a huge expanse of water. And during the night, they'll drift around on that safe from foxes and things like that. Um, and then out into the fields nearby um, to feed during the daytime. And uh, yeah, the locals, um, they know autumn has arrived when, when they see the skeins of geese overhead. So it's a, it's a stunning place for, for you know, bird life and you know, other species to, to hang out. And you know, I've, I've been around the lock a few times, you know, walking or, or, or on my bike, and you know, it changes every single day. It's, it's fascinating. But in terms of, you know, what the team at Nature Scott does, you know, or the old Scottish you know, National Nature Reserve, as I think it was until just recently. You know, if, if people see you guys out in the ground, you know, see you're driving about in your, your funky looking vehicles, which, which are you know, all funny shapes and sizes, you know, I can't imagine any day will, will be the same. But I mean, what's the, what's the types of work that you've been doing here? Okay, so yeah, I mean, Nature Scott, um, we were Scottish Natural Heritage um, and we've just become Nature Scott. And, uh, you know, that's a real, it's a new era almost for Nature Scott. Um, but we've always been uh, very involved here with volunteer work. So we have a great team at Loch Leven of volunteers um, who help the regular reserve staff um, doing a whole variety of different tasks. So, I mean, I suppose if I were to go through uh, maybe a, a year on the reserve and I can give you a kind of a taster of, of how the seasons occupy our time really on the reserve. At the moment we're in autumn um, so for the staff um, we're regularly up um, bright and early um, counting the geese so we take part in um, the Icelandic grey goose census um, which is a national survey and uh, we 
uh, basically go around the reserve along with our colleagues at RSPV Scotland and count all of the geese um, on the reserve as accurately as we possibly can. Um, and that feeds into a national data set when we do that. We also, this time of year with our volunteer teams, we would be sort of clearing back um, the trail around the, around the reserve, just any overhanging vegetation outside of the breeding season, um, just clearing the paths for folk um, because it's very popular and you know over the course of the summer um, needs quite a lot of maintenance. And then my colleagues just today, in fact, they'll be out doing the um, webs counts, which is a wetland bird survey. Um, so they'll be out and about again surveying all of the different um, species on the reserve but also um, we have staff who will be out you probably heard just there um, some of the visitors on the heritage trail there um, and we just spend a lot of time just out um, you know in the hides talking to visitors maybe helping them do a bit of bird watching informing them about the reserve as well and then through the summer months um, that can be management of invasive species, um, things like Himalayan balsam. Our volunteer team regularly spend their days during the summer months um, pulling out some of the Himalayan balsam which we've got around the reserve which uh, takes over from some of our other native species. It's quite invasive or highly invasive. And then lots of surveys as well um, and as I say keeping the, the, the trail clear for, for visitors um, and things like you know the less salubrious side of things, litter picks and things like that as well. Unfortunately, that's a part of our, our daily routine. Um, yeah, so really varied, really, and the kind of stuff we can be doing. You know, just going around here during you know what has been, I'm sure must be a real challenging time with the, the pandemic. You know, it's been quite striking. You know, the number of people who have been able to to utilise the, the trail and the lock and, and go out there, but. For, for you and your team, you know, how's, how's COVID-19 impacted on you being able to do all the work? I mean, have you been able to get out the whole time? Did you have to be furloughed? You know, what have been the, the, the main challenges and you know, how, how do you keep up with something like that? Um, well, I mean, I think we were all thankful that we didn't have to be furloughed. We didn't, we didn't go that far. Um, but there was during, you know, the core part of lockdown from what, you know, the end of March through till, through till early June, really we were not able to get out on the reserve really um, we were working from home so we had a graduate placement um, who was kind of training to, to work on nature reserves and understand more about nature conservation and he started um, in the end of the summer before but basically he then ended up um, having to do a lot of work from home we had a seasonal who started beginning of march um, and again, she almost never got onto the reserve before lockdown hit. But both of them were kept busy um, doing things like creating resources online. So we did lots of activities for, for families and things, you know, people who were maybe um, stuck inside, not necessarily, you know, it, with Kinross and Loch Leven on their doorstep, but just anybody could go out and, um, you know, create some art in nature and things like that, you know, in their half hour exercise. Um, so, you know, it was, it was things like that. And also there was certainly an element of being able to catch up on um, sort of jobs that we had, you know, paperwork that we'd been meaning to do for a long while and we were finally able to, to get round to doing. You know, so initially there was a lot to do and then it was just preparing for coming back to the reserve as well. But we did, you know, when we came back in June, um, it's fair to say that we were, we were kind of behind on a lot of our work, things like the invasive 
species management. You know, we were behind with that. Some of the surveys that we would ordinarily have done, we'd missed those. Um, you know, wildlife didn't wait for COVID. It just carried on doing its thing. And what, what kind of long-term impact does that have? And is that something that, you know, over a course of time will be remedied? Or, you know, do you think right now as, a, as an impact, you know, it's something that perhaps we'll, you'll never be able to, to catch up on? Uh, I mean, there are some things, so, you know, some some data will be missing. And I mean, that's something that nationally, you know, things like, as I say, the, the wetland bird surveys that we do, you know, we don't just do that for, you know, here. Those are being done throughout the British Isles and most of that stopped for a period. So, yes, there will be impacts in terms of, you know, a year's data set. Uh, but in terms of, you know, the birds were still there. Um, we know that all of the... the um, the ducks were still breeding out on St. Surfs. You know, we don't know how successful a year it was, but we know that they were still out there. Um, and, you know, we still saw plenty of young um, when we came back out of furlough. So, you know, that kind of thing has carried on. Uh, our, our invasive species management, well, you know, we've lost a year of that, but, you know, we'll just have to work harder next year. Um, but there's been so many positives to it, you know, because um, I think, you know, People were out enjoying the reserve, and I think that that's that's a really important thing that came out of COVID was that people um, really appreciated what they had on their doorstep here, um, and you know the value, the green space that they've got on their doorstep, perhaps more than they did pre-COVID. You know, there were so many people enjoying taking their daily exercise out here, and at the same time they were seeing, you know, they were seeing roe deer out on the trail. Um, they saw their first kingfisher from the hide where we're sat here now. Um, you know, they saw great crested grebe carrying young on its back. And they, they, they kind of, because everybody had slowed down, um, we weren't there with them necessarily um, because, you know, we weren't out and about, but people were still enjoying that and getting that. And I think, you know, they hopefully understand more about what Nature Scott are trying to achieve with, with the reserve here, um, you know, and I think... Uh, I think long term there'll be a lot of positives come out of it, um, but it was a strange, it was a strange summer, um, and there was a lot of catching up to be done um, when we did when we did get back out. It's interesting because I've been following a, a debate about you know, for instance, how you know some of the Scandic and Nordic countries you know embrace their environment, you know, everything from having huts to just getting out and hiking up hills and skiing and and all the various things, lots of which do happen in Scotland but it does seem that even amid the tragedy of you know the pandemic people have found this way to reconnect and slow down and perhaps reevaluate their own sort of balance in terms of how they conduct their life and the work-life balance in, in particular so when you see more people coming around you know does that make you think it will be there for the long term now do you think it's embedded in the psyche already I think I think it probably is. I think people are going to be, and I hope people will um, take the opportunity to enjoy um, and enjoy the countryside, enjoy the nature on their doorstep, be them fortunate enough to have somewhere like Loch Leven or the other green spaces um, that they may have near their home. I think, you know, people will hopefully do that. And, I, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that that will happen. I think, um, you know, there's probably going to be other changes which, you know, mean that maybe people aren't traveling overseas so much and they are enjoying, you know, the Scottish um, landscape and countryside more. And that is that there is an audience there, um, some of whom maybe haven't 
really thought about visiting Scotland, walking the local hills around here, visiting the Heritage Trail. And so, you know, I think Nature Scott going forward, part of our role will be um, really about trying to educate people in terms of, you know, how to do that responsibly because, you know, it's not like a city centre of Glasgow where, you know, for example, you know, there's bins everywhere and you just put your rubbish, you know, in the nearest bin and if you don't bother doing that, well, someone will be along behind you to pick it up. Uh, unfortunately, the countryside isn't that like that. Um, and, you know, we did have problems with people, um, you know, with the amount of litter that was left on the reserve you know, vandalism and things like that, you know, that was very much something that, you know, particularly during lockdown was a real problem. And the only time that we were able to get out of our, our home offices was um, if we were out to go and repair damage in one of the bird hides or something like that, unfortunately, or broken glass and things like that in the hides. But that's a small number of people and so many other people, I hope, will really um, continue to enjoy the countryside and really appreciate the value that it has for our physical and mental well-being, as well as, you know, the biodiversity and the benefits of that, you know, globally. I, I don't want to get, um, go down the, the line of politics particularly, but I'm curious to know if you think that, again, the as people have rediscovered nature and mental health comes to the fore and just general well-being for folk and the environment, bear in mind COP26 is obviously next year, so there's going to be a huge year-long attention on how Scotland can pursue the world to, to lead going forward. Now, do you think there might actually be an opportunity for it be, to be more support given to organisations like Nature Scotland and other stakeholders in, in the sector to to do more to open up these spaces or perhaps even enhance and expand the spaces? I think there will be and I really hope that there will be and I think Nature Scott are going to be at the fore of doing that of, you know, um, you know, biodiversity, um, you know, really climate change, all these, you know, these global issues but um, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the green recovery and I think, you know, Nature Scott and so many other organisations are really going to be the ones that are going to be driving that forward. And what I really hope and I believe will be the case is that I think that, you know, post-COVID, I think the audience in terms of the general public is going to be much bigger and much more um, sympathetic and will listen to that and will hopefully support that going forward. You know, it's, it's a massive topic um, and there are so many different um, aspects to it, but I think Broadly speaking, yeah, I think um, I think we're going to see a, a real change, and I really look forward to the um, you know to the greening of our countryside, to you know biodiversity, more green spaces in urban areas, um, you know inf green infrastructure connecting all these places, and you know the wildlife being able to um, you know move through the countryside more freely, and you know the um, you know the benefits that we will see in terms of you know carbon mitigation and things like that as well. So Neil, we're on to the quick fire round, which is just to say the first thing that comes in your head, perhaps if your personal hat on rather than your work hat on, but just in case. So first of all, car bans or higher fuel prices? Higher fuel prices. Okay, trees or oceans? Ooh, oceans. <laughs> Okay, what should citizens do next in the fight for climate? Go electric. The three biggest barriers to saving the planet? 
people. Probably people, people and people, <laughs> I'm afraid. Okay, which one species would you save and why? <laughs> I don't know. Um, there are just too many. I don't, I don't think I could pick out one. I mean, part of me would say just something that you just see all the time, like, like the robin. There's been a robin in the background quite a lot. Uh, and, you know, without a robin, the world would be such a different place. But it's not very profound to say something like that. That was Neil Mitchell talking to Sean about how Nature Scott has adapted to the lockdown and the pandemic in recent months. So, Sean, one of the things that sort of caught my ear there was when he talked about vandalism in the park and sort of vandalism across Scotland in nature reserves and people learning to treat nature with a bit of respect. So what do you think we need to do to sort of change the attitude of Scots towards nature and littering in nature. I think uh, Neil was quite open about the problems there has been uh, by a minority of people, you know, so perhaps youth uh, wandering with not a lot else to do in the pandemic. It's a difficult time for everybody. I think he's acknowledged that. But the great thing is how so many Scots and other people have embraced nature, you know, have taken to the hills, have taken to the trails, uh, went everywhere they can. But yes, there's clearly a problem with litter in particular. And when, you know, volunteers and staff are furloughed, there's nobody there to do the, the picking up, you know, other than joggers, plogging, well-meaning people carrying care bags around. So, you know, when you're in an area as beautiful as the NNR at Loch Leven, you know, the last thing you want to see is piles and piles of rubbish there. But if you look towards, you know, he alluded to some of the Scandinavian models there as well, whereby people take a real pride in their countryside, a real pride in nature, and have embraced it as an everyday part of their life. Perhaps this is a real opportunity for, for Scots in particular and people based in Scotland to you know, make the best use of this. And maybe it will be a change for the better if you know, we, we learn to take the litter with us, put it in our pocket. And perhaps that's something that will seed through to young, younger generations as well. And it'll become less of a problem in years to come. I would hope so. I think it was definitely concerning initially when we started to come out of lockdown because we initially did have that five mile travel restrictions and sort of more towards the west in Loch Lomond. I know that for a fact uh, 20 campers were charged after they basically destroyed parts of the beauty spot. So I think there's still a lot of lack of responsibility among people going out into nature. And I think we can sort of see that in the cities. But when you start to see it in Scotland's nature, it's even a bit more disturbing. But I think, as you said, there is there's beginning to be more connection with nature. And that's sort of something that David Hunt from the RSPB talked about to me when in our interview. David Hunt talked a lot about nature not having the ability to shut down and lockdown really didn't impact nature in the same way it impacted the rest of us. Well, that's the thing both Neil and David have said. You know, there's been a real positive effect for nature as well you know, because we've not had the same you know wave of traffic coming through you know the planes going across the skies you know, nature has in some ways you know reclaimed lost ground if you will and I thought he was really really positive I was really pleased to hear David talking about you know the opportunity this gives us if we just take the chance you know he was talking about the green recovery about coalitions about how the nature recovery plan can actually make a, a 
brilliant effect on how we not only treat nature, but invest in nature in the future. And I think the starkest thing he said is, we cannot afford to drop the ball. You know, the nature crisis hasn't abated. You know, species are still under threat. You know, so while, you know, Neil suggesting that we've perhaps not had the same opportunity to to count the species as before, David's saying it's what we do next that matters. You know, he points to the net zero targets for 2045, you know, the biodiversity being put to the fore and what we can all do about this. And I was really, really heartened to, to hear about the work that RSPB are doing. So here's David Hunt's interview. Can you tell us a bit, David, what, what it is RSPB does? Yeah, so the RSPB, um, as you said, we are one of the largest nature conservation charities um, in the UK and indeed across Europe. It's our mission to protect and save the UK's wonderful wildlife and work with partners overseas um, in protecting and promoting wildlife. We've got a network of fantastic nature reserves in which we protect um, birds and other incredible wildlife up and down the UK. We also work very closely with people and it's our mission to connect people with nature through engagement, through schools programmes, through some of the events that we run on our reserves. So we are, if you like, the organisation that seeks to bring people and nature together at a time when we need to do this more than ever. We need to work together because nature is in crisis. We're in the middle of a biodiversity and a climate crisis. And so organisations such as the RSPB, along with other partner organisations, we have a really important role to play. And indeed, we act in in policy and advocacy circles. We seek to work with and influence governments across the UK to implement those transformative policies that can help nature for the better. Yeah, so just like reflecting on that, basically, like there is also a sentence that on the RSPB website that sort of stood out to me, which was uh, uh, you sort of tackle what needs to be done to improve the fate of nature. So like talking about like exactly that, like the fact that nature is in a crisis and the climate crisis. So can you just maybe outline a little bit about what specifically and like what kind of policies you guys are implementing to try and fight that loss of biodiversity? Yeah. So biodiversity um, is in trouble. It's in trouble, not just in the UK, it's in trouble across the world. And we're seeing real signs now that that in fact is accelerating with certain species and certain really important habitats. The climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are interlinked. Governments have made this made this case across the UK and across the world and so we need to start joining the dots up and that and showing that people need a healthy climate, they also need nature to be in as good as condition as possible because the state of our nature is really important for the state of the economy for our health and well-being for society for for jobs and for the for our very future so we're working with um, other partner organizations to try and map out what a positive future looks like for nature in in scotland and, ac and across the uk and one of the things actually we've been working on recently um, is, is really targeting 
this post-COVID-19 recovery. So let's see a green recovery. And in Scotland, we have worked with a coalition of organisations such as WWF Scotland, Scottish Wildlife Trust and others to pull together a nature recovery plan for Scotland, which sets out 11 transformative actions that government can implement that really focuses upon valuing nature and investing in nature because nature during the pandemic has been seen to be a real source of comfort and solace for people. But we need to start thinking about marrying up the societal issues, economic issues, and then the climate and biodiversity crisis. And by saying that if we bring them together and invest in nature, through nature-based solutions such as peatland restoration or expansion of native woodlands, we can deliver multiple benefits to people, to jobs and to nature. So it's about can we identify strands of work, can government prioritise peatland restoration, native woodland expansion, the sustainable numbers of deer in our uplands, climate and nature-friendly farming. And so what we're trying to do as an organisation is to produce these actions that we feel government can and should invest in to benefit everyone. And that's, that's the real importance of nature and, and, and the biodiversity crisis is that it's more than just nature st standalone. It's about bringing together everything so that we can come out of this world in which everything is very different this year. Yeah. And set some real achievable targets that we can we can we can work towards a green recovery and make making sure that we capitalize on the the positive feelings that nature has generated uh, during this process. Yeah, definitely. I think nature's definitely been a solace for a lot of people throughout this pandemic. And so do you think the government though has what do you think like their reaction sort of is to these policies? Do you think the pandemic has detract, distracted a bit from uh, the climate emergency and just generally the issues of loss of biodiversity and stuff? Like, obviously, there's a lot on the government's plate at the minute. But do you think that means like a bit of focus on these issues is being lost in any way? Understandably, um, there has been a lot on the plate of the the, the Scottish government and also the, the UK government. But I think now is the time, by, by raising this, now is the time that we can't afford to drop the ball on this. Because whilst organisations like RSPB and others have had, our, we've had our challenges through this period, nature, the, the nature crisis is still as, as bad as it ever has been. And we need to make sure that we don't lose time through, through all of this. And so that's why we are keeping the pressure on by saying, let's, let's work collaboratively, let's work innovatively together so that we can come out of this in a, in a much better place with, with nature at the heart. So whilst there are always going to be sort of really pressing matters relating to COVID that are going to take up a lot of time for, for the government, we feel it's our role to keep raising the issues that need to be considered if we are genuinely going to make progress towards reaching net zero by 2045, but also at the same time reversing the biodiversity crisis. So now is actually a, a good time 
to really sort of reprioritize and focus on those issues that we need to that we feel we can make that can make a difference and that's why a coalition of organizations in the conservation sector have worked together and we feel that that is going to be so important going forward that we might be the RSPB and one of the biggest nature conservation charities in the UK but we have real strength with the environmental sector in this in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK and it's by working together that we can really make a pitch for just why governments need to invest in nature because it's it's for jobs it's for people it's for health and well-being and it's for the climate yeah and so just like reflecting a little bit on that can you just tell me has the pandemic impacted this at all so obviously uh the pandemic has impacted a lot of things in the way we do things so how has it specifically measured how have the measures and coronavirus restrictions impacted your work particularly practical and monitoring work has this been affected i think back um got a little story um so i think back to march of this year and i was out in in, a, in an upland site in the hills in perthshire on the perthshire stirling border in mid-march and i happened to see golden eagle a hen harrier multiple black grouse, curlew, a, a great site, essentially kind of one of those days where you think, yeah, it's good to be out. I came home to the instruction that it was going to be homeworking for the foreseeable future. We, we, we were aware that things were happening and that it was highly likely that uh, we were going to be impacted upon some uh, at some point. But then all of a sudden, things changed. And for, for an organisation like RS, for the RSPB, there's lots of people that we are, we are used to be out and about, whether it's on our reserve network, whether it's speaking with people in, on projects in, in areas like, in like Glasgow and some of our big projects like the Giving Nature a Home project, visiting schools. And so obviously, like many people and many organisations, we suddenly had a new way of working and a complete shift in how we approach things. From a practical perspective, we had the logistical challenges of essentially closing down our reserve network, which had many challenges, very also a lot of frustrations for our reserve staff who would, a lot of our land management work, so our habitat improvement, our habitat restoration, takes place outside of the bird breeding season um, so that we don't have to spend too much time out on the ground disturbing the birds when they're breeding. So all of a sudden, we had this period where we weren't going to be able to conduct monitoring. And our reserves work on a, an annual cycle with their management plan. So we were really just gearing up for one of the most exciting times of the year, the birds coming back. Um, and so that preparation for the spring months had to be paused. Um, we had re reduced resources. Um, like many organisations, we had to take some fairly difficult decisions and the RSPB did access the job retention scheme. So we had up to nearly half of our workforce um, on furlough. So we had to adapt, like, like others did, to a new way of working with fewer people and then to really focus in still on what the 
what the priorities were, where where were the sort of the challenges that needed tackled. And for me in my work, I found that a lot of the a lot of my work away from the reserves carried on. I was still speaking to landowners and other stakeholders about woodland creation. I was still talking to them about breeding birds that they were seeing and making plans for next year. So we we did have we did have to refocus. We did have to pause. Um, and certainly, when you've got such an ex- extensive reserve network that we, as we do, that involves visitor management, it involves catering, it involves events, it involves monitoring and sort of practical species work. We had a lot of strands of work that we needed that we needed to stop. There were certain things across our reserves that we that fell into sort of an essential category that we did have to carry on. So. We have a, a large number of reserves out on the, in the islands, so on the west coast and in the north, that, uh, that operate and um, some of them operate as working farms. So we still had, it came at a time of year when there was carving and lambing was about to start. So we still had animal welfare responsibilities. We had compliance issues that we needed to work with. We needed to make sure our estate was in, was in, in good order. So people were doing sort of periodic checks of our reserves we also had challenges that in, an, in a normal year would have been hard. So in May, um, our reserve on the Tay reed beds on the River Tay in, in Perth and Kinross, we had a massive fire. And in, and in a normal year, without COVID, that would have been a huge logistical challenge for the team. The reserve team there had to organise um, a response with emergency services um, involving hiring a helicopter to, to carry water to put the fire out all during lockdown so many challenges and all the while we've still got these issues that we've spoken about before about how nature still needs us but for a time we certainly did have to take a step back from it all one of the kind of quirkier things that we kind of had to think about is yes are there is there any evidence of species that in a normal year would nest way over there but now we're kind of are popping up closer to um, closer to pass. It's, it's a nice problem to have, but just kind yeah, of... Yeah, it opens up a it. new research. Like, it's a new interesting thing for you guys to sort of look into, like, what really it has been the impact of human beings, basically, now that they were taken out of the equation Absolutely. for a few months. I, I received a call during during lockdown of, of a, pair of, a pair of osprey that were nesting... Um, we're nesting in a, in a tree in a golf course, just in the middle of the golf course, um, because it was all of a sudden it was a, it was a quiet spot. And I think I think it's really interesting, isn't it, to think that 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 how species adapted in a really short period of time to that change. Um, and I think that's the, the the kind of comforting thing is that the birds were still there. That's very much the mindset I took is that it was, yes, it had its challenges this year and it was frustrating not to be out. But the birds came back. The swallows still arrived. The the geese flew off in March. The kind of, the, the ecological calendar carried on as normal. And I think one of the highlights for people was that they we were able to just slow it down and really see it. I can remember in March, when we were we went into into lockdown, where I am near the River Forth, we had a big movement of pink-footed geese that were heading back to Iceland, having spent the winter here, and we'd see them going over the garden. And then a week or so later, we had the first swallows coming over. 
And I think that, I think people just spent more time appreciating what was around them because there were no planes in the sky for a time. The, the roads were quiet. And I think it's that, that sense of the, the importance of nature on a local level that we really also need to, to capitalise on. And don't get me wrong, there are, I'm, I was in a very fortunate position that we had a, a small garden that we could, I could be in and I could play with my children in. For many people, the opposite and a, and a big challenge for people is they, they didn't have access to local green space. And so one thing coming out of this is also this idea of this the importance of access to local green spaces and just how important on a, for our health and well-being nature is. And so it's, it's kind of a two-fold approach. We want nature to be in good condition to improve our physical and mental well-being. But then nature benefits from that because people have made more connections and are more likely to be inspired by nature and want to help us on our journey with, with protecting nature. So the challenges of this period have been great and there are, and, and many people have suffered this year, but we do have to look for these kind of, these opportunities and the fact that nature has played such a powerful role in this. Yeah, I like I like the positivity of that. And I, I definitely agree that, you know, so many more people realize just, you know, what nature can do and what what it can really represent for your mental health and well-being. So I think like people because of that, like they have like a closer connection to nature. So I think that is an important thing. And do you think just like connecting into that, that people have now become more interested in the work, for instance, that RSPB does and mm -hmm. other conservation and environmental organizations sort of do so whether this is like support through financial support which probably is well needed by the organizations or just more interest in general is that something that has been noted at all during the past few months yeah so one of the one I guess one of the areas of work that we we haven't been able to do as much over the over the summer is connecting with people on our reserves but this is again for every challenge there's an opportunity and one of the things that we have seen is that our social media channels have generated a lot of attention people now um, want to see exciting content they want to hear about what we're doing arguably even more one of the first things that um, we set up in the in the spring was this this idea of doing a, a breakfast bird watch where we were encouraging people to send in pictures and videos of what they were seeing every morning, kind of similar to what we run every year in the winter with our big garden bird watch. Um, but really just to get people talking. And I think that's something that we, that, that kind of mode of communications we'll be looking to, to continue because people are interested and we, we need to sort of demonstrate to them what we're doing, showcase our work, because then we can bring people along the journey with us and whether they then want to spend some time working with us, volunteering with us, finding out more about us or visiting a reserve for the first time. I think it's a really important area of our job and something that possibly is going to be even more apparent going forward is about make, bringing 
to bring into people's attentions just what nature can do. And it is, it's so powerful. You know, you know, the sort of the feeling when, I don't know, it's a nice day or even if it's a nice day and you, you see some, you see a swallow fly over, you see the change in the colours of the leaves, you see swans flying over or you just spend time on a, on a windy beach or just, or even if you're not anywhere near the coast, just walking through a park and listening to the starlings and the house sparrows. The COVID-19 pandemic has really brought all this to, the, to people's attention. And I think it's our job to continue to run with this, to demonstrate to people that everything, everything they see around them is so powerful. And if we all kind of invest in it, invest our time in it, governments invest money in it, then we can all work together to kind of get to this, get to a place where um, nature is in a much better position. Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of ties into a question that we kind of want to ask in every uh, interview that we do. And that's specifically how can a normal or uh, a normal person help the work that you do and get involved themselves in the work that you do. So this is like whether, how can our listener basically get involved and, even help RSPB carry out the work they want to do. It's a really good question, and it's. I think it's. I think it's. It will depend on depend on a number of things. I mean, one of the ways is obviously if you have the uh, if you can do, you can come to visit one of our incredible reserves. But that won't be an option for everyone because our reserves are spread out across the country, and um, people, access to transport maybe maybe an issue. Or so I think it's. I think it's about a number. There are a number of things you can do. You can go online and have a look at the things I've spoken about. You can go. And, you can have a look at nature prescriptions. You can go and read our nature recovery plan that we produced jointly. But perhaps one of the more powerful things is just to take. It's just to take a walk outside. Go into your garden if you have one. Go for a walk along the street or to to a park, and just take a minute to appreciate kind of what's around you. Um, because I think a big part of our journey and our message is inspiring people to acknowledge what is around them, because that connection with nature is so important for nature itself. But then if people are invested and people are interested in nature, then that is that can only be a positive. So you can come to reserve. You can read some of the great stuff that, that we're doing from on it in interna- internationally, but also closer to home. But on a kind of proactive uh, physical and mental well-being level, go for go for a walk. See what you, see what you can see. And I think the thing about nature is be curious. Be don't don't be put off by you might not know what that bird is. You might not know what that tree is over there. It's about it's about sort of bringing people along on a journey and showing that nature is important to us all. So, um, so yeah, I think take, take a walk to go and go and go and explore what, what's around you. So that was David Hunt. And I, as we said, just before we played his interview, you know, such optimism for what we can do if there's investment there. How did you find speaking to him? Did you kind of get caught up in that enthusiasm as well, Emma? 
I think I definitely did. I, I think a lot throughout the interview, I really related to the positivity he was talking about and sort of embracing nature as an option to get out of the madness that we've experienced in the past few months. And I think a lot of people have identified and found themselves within nature and found this sort of escape from all the stress that 2020 has posed. And I, I think this really does connect to sort of like even a changing feeling towards nature in Scotland and how people will interact and treat their these nature reserves or even you know, parks, anything like green spaces in general, I think became really important throughout this time. And I think just embracing that fact that not everything had to shut down, not everything had to lock down and nature carried on is a very positive way and a positive outlook that we should sort of adopt towards the end of this pandemic. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, in the places that are easily accessible either. I mean, there's so many great places to go. But as Mike Daniels, Head of Policy and Land Management with the John Muir Trust, told us later, there's a whole professional realm that people have to consider here as well in terms of managing land on a large scale. You know, if you go up into the mountains, up into the grouse moors, if you wander around Scotland to, you know, far-fung places, as well as the beaches and, and so on, and forests which are perhaps the kind of places you and I are more likely to, to get to. You know, there's lots and lots of challenges beyond litter, beyond counting species. And I think some of his insights were particularly pertinent given our current time. So here's what Mike Daniels from the John Muir Trust had to say. Mike, hello. Hello, John. Tell me this, not everybody I speak to knows about the John Muir Trust. However, almost all of them have been on some land that John Muir Trust manage. Can you explain a bit more about what is the organisation does and where your footprint is? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, hopefully people will have heard of, they might not have heard of the John Muir Trust, but they should have heard of Ben Nevis and possibly Shehalian and Sandwood Bay and some of the other places that we own and manage. Yeah, the John Muir Trust was founded almost 40 years ago. Um, so it's relatively a new charity in, in Scottish terms. And it's really focused on wild, so wild land, wild places, and these bits of the countryside that people can really experience kind of nature in the raw, if you like. And that was the origin. And it started off really because wild land at the time was under threat. The Ministry of Defence were planning to um, create a, a live bombing range in Noidart and, and basically obliterate a bit of land. I guess the sort of feeling at the time was that those that were planning it thought that was a kind of useless bit of land that nobody would notice. But actually, there was a lot of hill walkers and people that visited the land and indeed local people that, that were keen on setting up a community there that um, thought differently. And so the John Muir Trust was instrumental at the time in, well, A, in protecting Noidart and, and actually going on to set up the Noidart Foundation, which was a community-led organisation that, that took on the management of the land. Uh, but also trying to raise awareness and protecting um, our sort of, you know, finite wild land across the country, really. One of the things that struck me just reading some background before before we were blithering um, was, you know, it's a phrase that stuck out for me, protecting the land and empowering communities. That, that sounds to be a fantastic mission statement. Yeah, I think you really need to go back to the, the, the origin of the trust, which um, we've recently been looking at that, you know, and during lockdown, actually, time to reflect on all sorts of things. And um, yes, absolutely. At the time, uh, the trust was kind of really 
recognize it, to be honest, unless people value something, and particularly local people that live and value the land around them, um, it, it's really hard to get that to be protected. And it's quite unusual in, in, in Scotland, actually, in that in a lot of the world, conservation bodies are, if you like, indigenous um, groups that are protecting, trying to you know, protect their rainforest from getting logged or felled. Or, But in Scotland, a lot of the conservation bodies have, are perceived sometimes as being from outside, so people that are coming from outside wanting to do something. And that really stems a lot, actually, from the land ownership patterns that we have. So we've got very big estates um, that are kind of quite sort of feudal in history. And local people don't really necessarily feel very empowered in how the land is used and managed. So I, I guess that was kind of, although maybe not at the time, what people thought about. But that's what the John Muir Trust was sort of uh, involved right at the beginning. Mike, do you think there's any way, and perhaps this is happening already, I don't know. Is there any way that we can be learning more lessons from sort of European countries, the likes of Norway, and importing some of their ideas or even their, their expertise to try and, you know, change the shape of how we deal with things here? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think I think there always is. I think I think Scotland is, is, is Scots are generally quite outward looking and, and international or outlook, and I think that's that, that's something we need to should always do really. And, and I think the risk of, I guess, without getting too political, the risk of Brexit or the risk of the pandemic is that people tend to sort of you know lock down or you tend to look internally and, and focus too much on what you've got. And I think really there are, there are lots of lessons we've learned from other places, um, and you know even further afield than than Europe. Um, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, depends how far you want to go. But for example, in the, uh, you know, some countries they have a national tree planting day where they, you know, the entire population goes out and plants a tree one day a year, and, and you know, it's just that whole sort of culture about recognising how important woodland are. So, so yes, yeah, so there's lots of things we could do. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's not it, that. All sounds quite daunting, and I think there are some tweaks to to forestry that we already have native woodland planting schemes. We've all, but we also, you know, tweaking that subsidy to, to managing deer better. That would be one simple thing that would encourage natural regeneration. Um, and then to look at, I guess, look at consumers at the other end. You know, when we buy timber and we buy products, you know, where are we getting them from, and what sort of quality are we getting? So. I mean, having said that, like anything, we, we can't transition completely. So there is, a, there is a role for and there is a need for commercial forestry, undoubtedly. Um, but again, it's, it's just thinking strategically, where is that best placed and what's the right models for that? So, yeah, so a lot, a lot in there and probably, yeah, on the edge of, of my knowledge now in terms of how you change these big things. But um, certainly in our land, we look at um, trying to do things. So we've got a, a property in Glenlood in the borders where we're trying to turn, we bought a, we were given actually a, a, a very, a benefactor of us left the land to us. She lived on site. Um, and so we're, we're trying to convert what was a Forest Commission plantation into a native woodland, but using lots of people. So rather than just getting a big machine in to fell it all, over the last 10 years or so, we've been using volunteers and a whole range of um, groups from John Muir War groups to Phoenix Futures, which is a drug rehabilitation group, to uh, the Green Team, to Gala Works, a whole range of local uh, social enterprise groups to come in and help with us and we're trying to uh, fell small coops and then use brash fencing and then plant native woodland so to try and regenerate the woodland turn it back to a single uh, you know uh, from a single species into a, a native woodland and um, but using a lot of people and energy and activity over a long period rather than just doing it in a short term uh, so that's one model and um, so yeah so I think we can try and do what we can on our own land and then look yeah, looking further afield, it needs some serious thinking and, and policy changes. But yeah, absolutely, looking abroad is always a good starting point and looking at how, you know, the best bits of what other countries do and trying to incorporate that into a new modern vision for this country. Do, do you know, I, I love the 
beautiful idea of having all these groups coming together to try and essentially build their own forest. You know, that's that's fantastic. And you can imagine that being on a much larger scale, you know, you talk about national tree planting days, for instance, I mean, wouldn't that be marvellous if you could do that in Scotland? But I think you mentioned two things there which are clearly uppermost in our mind right now. One is obviously the pandemic and the impact that must have on organisations such as yourselves and, and others. And of course, when you have a pandemic and some activity and work stops, then there must be, I would imagine, a, a follow-through in that in terms of how the land changes, you know, how red deer, for instance, will, will get in and about the, the trees that have been planted already and the other shrubs without anybody having been there to, you know, mitigate those circumstances. What's it been like for you guys in terms of an organisation? I mean, have you had to furlough? Have you had to stop activity? Or because it's outdoors, have you maybe escaped the worst of this? Yeah, no. So I th- well, so I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's two two elements. Really. There's financial and there's, there's the work stream. And financially, um, to some extent, we've been slightly lucky in that we, we don't have, you know, we aren't worked on a model of visitor attractions where people pay to enter. So people join us because they believe in what we're doing and want us to do the good work. And actually, in many ways, this whole period people have been reflecting on that and their priorities so we've we, so far we've done we've done we're holding up okay on that front but obviously the future is uncertain for all of us as you know if we if we you know suffer some economic shock which looks inevitable then we'll all be struggling i guess but so far that hasn't been luckily touch wood initially anyway such a big issue for us on the work front you're absolutely right um so there was a furlough period and, and our our because of the restrictions in, in the initial strict lockdown we couldn't uh, you know, drive around to our sites, or um, so. So there was a two or three month period when when our land staff were, weren't able to work, um, or were only able to work from home and on the computer. So there was quite a furlough period. As soon as we could ease that, we did, and we also then had to deal with obviously an influx of visitors and trying to deal with visitor management, um, which is great to see so many people coming to the countryside. But obviously, it had challenges and problems too, which are kind of probably well rehearsed. So yes, and, and actually, luckily again, in terms of deer, it was a period when we, we uh, happened when we, we aren't quite so effective the deer, um, and we don't do so much management in that in those early summer months. So that was didn't affect us in that way. But you're right, nationally there has been an impact. I think in terms of people um, probably having less uh, culling deer, and also the, the the venison market has suffered, so people are less incentivized by the price. But I think. Yeah, I think also it, it kind of maybe also reflects on the on on the methods and the way people do things. So having local communities involved in deer management and local people getting the venison directly to their plates it, it is again a cultural shift the way we need to move towards because the idea of having foreign guests coming in to shoot something for fun for a couple of months in the year probably a in terms of traveling around and b in terms of just that short focus probably isn't isn't sustainable in the long term. So and again that's the kind of cultural model we have. Um, so in terms of your management, yes, again, it's been a chance to refocus and think about how can we develop local stocking for people? How can we people get, you know, from hill to grill so they can get the venison from the land into their plates locally um, and cut out all these um, long food miles and all the rest of it. So there is there are some opportunities that we're looking at. And again, it's quite it's quite a task to change a system. But that's kind of I guess it's kind of refocused us in thinking about that um, as one of the sort of yeah, byproducts of this of this pandemic. And certainly looking at social media, you know, anybody who's ventured out into the hills who's never seen them before has got the, their, their smartphones out and posting pictures on Instagram with deer everywhere, it would seem, you know, it's as if they suddenly thought, 
it's party time for <laughs> for our species and off they are roaming the hills and onto the roads and and everywhere. So it'll be really interesting to hear how you know various organisations and groups and and those feel um, the deer population uh, can be addressed because you know. We don't have natural predators, for instance, wolves and, and the likes. You know, we've talked about the the downside of you know the, the stalking. You know, but something clearly needs to be looked at. And I'm wondering if you think there needs to be any kind of um, particular committee or project looked at this in in focus. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you're, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, again, it comes back to this cultural thing. Actually, the the deer population since the 1960s, I and mean, all the evidence is that it's it's doubled or trebled and it's been going up up the way since yeah well since the records began if you like so and i think the context again looking at other countries that the red deer particularly the red deer density in in, in scotland is 10 or 100 times higher than it is in most other countries so we're t- talking of an order of magnitude which is just staggering but people because we're used to it and we're kind of people see deer all the time they kind of think that's how it should be and they are stunning you know beautiful native animals so it's a bit it's always a bit challenging to think that all the conservation, wildlife conservation bodies in the U- in Scotland are arguing to to kill a, a, more of a species, but the reason is really, as you say, there's no natural predators, and therefore we've kind of we've kind of knackered the whole system as it is. So we're now left with something that, unless we do something about it, we can't basically can't grow woodland. And actually, from the deer welfare point of view, these huge populations are are subject to big uh, mortality events in the spring and, and late winter. They tend to die and starve in their thousands, sometimes tens of thousands. Um, every year and that's it's portrayed as natural but it's not really that natural because it wouldn't happen if you had a lower density so so you're absolutely right there needs to be a fundamental change we are quite lucky in that the the government the Scottish government has done quite a few things and look into this over the years um, I have to say it's pretty slow and, and they, but they are looking at it and there's a deer working group an independent deer working group that they commissioned uh, a couple of years ago and it reported uh, delayed but reported in February this year of course, just before all the, the pandemic stuff kicked off, but it made uh, really radical and sweeping and very well thought out and researched and thorough recommendations. And it made 99 recommendations. Wow. Um, and across the environmental NGO sector, and indeed, I think in the forestry sector, or certainly the commercial, the um, state forest sector, we're all 100% behind them, or you know, at least 98, if not 99, of the recommendations. So, and in fact. Um, you know, so we're kind of just waiting and waiting for the Scottish government to respond to that, and, and it's meant it's in the program for government. It's meant to be happening um, before the end of this, well, before the end of this year, hopefully, but more likely probably before the end of this parliamentary session. Um, so, and so, and actually, a lot of those recommendations don't require legislation. The, the, the government body, Nature Scott, um, could could actually implement quite a lot of them already. So, yeah, so we kind of feel actually, you're absolutely right. That there is a there's now a if you like a consensus or a, or a recognition, certainly among the from an independent group that that change is needed and a very clear roadmap as to how to do that. Um, we just need some action to do that. And actually, I don't think it's a big financial cost because a lot of, as we've said before, a lot of the, the landowners are, are relatively wealthy, and a lot of the you could do by regulation. You could rather than making a cost, you can you could uh, tell people to do the right thing, and the cost would be borne by those that that manage the deer. Um, so it's not necessarily a big cost to the taxpayer. Okay, we now have six questions that we try to do as a sort of quick fire round, if you will. And uh, you can either answer them as yourself or as an organisation. I wonder if we could see how we could do with these ones. 
Car ban or higher fuel prices? Yeah, I think you have to you have to go to a car ban, but you have to recognise that in rural, remote rural communities, you need to help produce alternatives. Um, so, which is kind of a bit of a fudge. But otherwise, you just end up with if it's a higher fuel prices, it, it ends up with wealthy people being able to manage and poverty poor people not. So, yeah, I think on its own that's not the answer. But I think yeah, trying to get alternatives is is certainly uh, the more credible way. Okay, oceans or trees. Gosh, that's really hard. Um, I guess as a John Muir Trust Wild Land charity, we'd have to go with the trees, but totally recognising that blue carbon is, well, the oceans are two thirds of the planet. Um, so yeah, I, I'm afraid I'd, I'd kind of have to say both if I'm allowed, but I'm probably not allowed. If you thought that was tough, wait till you get to the next one. If you could save one species from extinction, what would it be? Gosh, that is tough, yes. Um, yeah, oh, I'd have to think about that, yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's circle back on that one. I'll give you a few seconds. Yeah, okay. Three biggest barriers to saving the planet. So I think the elephant in the room we have to talk about is human population. So I think we, you know, we've got seven billion and counting, and if that just keeps going on and on, that's not sustainable the way it is now. So human population is definitely one. Um, I think. Uh, well, I think it's probably one, two, and three. Actually, I think it's, it's the number of people and our demands on the planet. Okay, if citizens could do one thing each to change the world, what would it be? Well, I think going back to our, to keep it really simple, I think it would be plant a tree. Okay, Greta or David? Probably with, uh, gosh, probably with Greta in terms of future generations. Okay, and back to the doozy, save one species. Right. Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go controversial because I'm going to think that if you if you go for there's probably a lot more valuable species that we don't know, like microbes and sphagnum moss for peatland and all sorts of things. But I'll go with the iconic um, because I think the golden eagle is really is really a sort of for us is a kind of symbol of wild land and wild places and, and good stewardship of the land. So I'm going to go golden eagle. Okay. And just before we go, if there's People want to find out more about John Muir Trust and get involved. Even how how can they go about that? So, in this day and age, obviously the website's the best place um, to start. And we have got we've actually got quite a lot of online materials. We've got a wild inside newsletter. We've got if you if you join, we've got membership stuff and, and e newsletters. Um, and then there are conservation activities that we have we do. And actually, the John Muir Award. Uh, obviously, at the moment, these are all slightly curtailed with with restrictions, but. Um, yeah, the, the John Muir Award is a fantastic thing to get engaged with and our conservation work parties are, are really good to do too. So kind of three ways there. Something caught my eye during lockdown was the film The Mountains Are Calling along with, it seems like lots of your, your guys were out there writing blogs as well, field notes I think they were called. They were talking about getting back into nature, getting back to, to doing the work you do. And I see that's been followed up further by a new discussion news of launch called our wild future. Do you know anything about that at all? Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, this is yeah. So we we had a series of of uh, in, in normal times, or maybe in well, maybe maybe we'll call this BC before COVID. Um, we 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 had a, a range of engage, events and engagement. So we'd go around the country with whether it's different mountain film festivals or whether it was uh, our our own sort of. We had a, a you know John Muir speakers and various events. So obviously that's 
being curtailed. So what we're doing now is more an online series. So absolutely. So we've had a series of events organized that people can join in discussions and debates about sort of wildland issues looking forward and, and how we deal with that. So, yeah. Okay, well, we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can find it if they go through. What's next for you this week? Uh, so we've got quite a lot, actually, f- uh, to deal with uh, debating with deer. So we're trying to work out how we um, yeah, how we can keep the momentum up in terms of uh, the Scottish government in terms of looking at deer reform because as I say if, if we can if we can crack the deer problem in Scotland we can we can go a long way to cracking the woodland problem and, and that's the carbon problem so um, yeah but that's kind of a going to take up a bit of time for the next few while. And that was Mike Daniels speaking about a range of issues including one that's at the heart of Scottish conservation and that's the management of Scotland's deer population. So Sean, where do you stand on this issue? Well, it's so central I should say to much of what's going on in the wild Scotland. You know, it affects everything from, you know, we we're, we're involved obviously in the Building Trees Scotland campaign and trying to persuade people that that planting trees, restoring habitats and taking other action to protect biodiversity is so, so important. Yet when you have deer populations exploding like this, it makes it so, so much harder because, you know, they eat the young saplings, they bring devastation to other parts of the area because there are no natural predators, you know, there are no wolves and the lynxes aren't there to, to keep them in check, even in part. And then it opens up the whole debate again about, you know, shooting them and culling them. You know, we've just had a, a different kind of debate about blood sports and uh, grouse moors. You know, this is slightly different because it's not for enjoyment, it's for a purpose. It seems quite unnatural to me to, you know, want to kill a, a species. But when you hear the arguments for doing so, and we're coming to winter, you know, these herds can be starving as well. You get the logic behind it. And it's something I really look forward to seeing what these recommendations and the reports coming forward are because you know it's probably going to be critical to how we not only achieve our carbon targets, but how we choose to manage our lands going forward. I definitely agree. I think initially when you sort of hear the ideas about deer population, you know, coming from not really understanding why it's that big of an issue, it, it can be quite off-putting to hear, you know, people that really, really care about nature saying that we should be killing them off. Uh, But I think, as you said, Mike Daniel sort of really does open this insight into why this is important and why we sort of need to do this. But as you mentioned, this issue does tie into our next segment of what's caught our eye. So there are a number of key topics that have been in the limelight. And one of them is that grouse shooting is to be licensed in Scotland. So this is something that you yourself wanted to bring up this episode, Sean. Hallelujah, at last this has happened, you know. I mean, an end to, you know, tossing tweets, getting out their shotguns and blasting poor birds just for fun. You know, I mean, we understand people have made an income from this, that people uh, enjoy this, you know, but there's got to be a far, far better use of land. And certainly people uh, I associate with would recommend that we could do so many things instead, you know, um, plant trees to sequester carbon, you know, open up the lands for green spaces for others to to enjoy. You know, why should it be in a handful of some people to, to use for blood sports? It seems ridiculous grouse moor burning you know you'll hear you'll hear an argument from the other side that you know they want to be good custodians of lands and perhaps some of them do do 
certain amounts of work. But it is there to create financial gain from people who enjoy this kind of activity. But when you have so many other organisations telling you it's wrong, it's fantastic that the government has finally not only listened, but brought forward the recommendations of a where to report. Because you know we've waited a long, long time for, for this to happen. And, you know, the statement that came out from those representing the landowners saying you know, it's just put a target on their backs, well, it makes a real change to, for a target to be on somebody else's backs instead of just the, the animals and birds themselves. You know, it's it's ridiculous that you know, they've got this almost entitled view of what they should be allowed to do. You know, these lands should be opened up for the common good of all. And I, I for one, I'm, I'm delighted to see this happen. Well, clearly the big news came from uh, America, uh, Joe Biden taking, we hope, the US presidential election if uh, Donald Trump ever yields the White House to him. But the thing that caught my eye was his appointing John Kerry as the climate ambassador. And the first thing Kerry doing was name-checking Glasgow and COP26 as being you know a catalyst for the year ahead and, and for the world to embrace. Now, if America is really going to lead the, the climate fight back from the front. I think that's a call to arms for all nations and it makes what happens in Scotland next November all the more important. And I, I definitely think it's very encouraging, especially for the past four years, we've sort of had a complete shutdown from the side of the United States of America, who obviously Donald Trump did not take it quite as seriously as Barack Obama did before him. So I, I think it is to a degree, I think it's very encouraging that they are raising issues such as the COP26 of, in Glasgow, and they are acknowledging that this is something that they already care about and are passionate about. We'll add the links to these and all our chats in our show notes, which you'll be able to find on our blog at kaitiakiconsulting.com. But that's all we have time for now. Thanks again to our guests, Neil Mitchell from Nature Scott, David Hunt at RSPB Scotland, and Mike Daniels from the John Muir Trust for their terrific insights and observations. To our sponsors, Alex Fawkes, and the team at Kaitiaki Consulting for making this podcast possible. And to you, our listeners, for lending us your ears. If you want to hear the full long-form interviews with each of them, you can find them at our podcast page or in our show notes. If you'd like to take part in a future episode, drop us a line or tweet us via our friends at WeAreKaitiaki. Our links will be in the bio. For our next episode, as the New Zealand Parliament finally moves to declare a climate emergency, we're hoping to bring you a flavour of what's been happening on the other side of the world, and we will be taking a look at what lessons Scotland might learn from there. Meantime, thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.